0: This week on Dig Me Out,
1: with your hosts Jason Zia and Tim Minichi.
2: Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union on Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at dmounion.com. That is digmeoutunion.com. And Jay, this is a patron-selected episode right here that we are doing.
1: Are you excited? I am. I love patron-selected episodes. And this is a new series. We've only done one of these before, so. Correct. Hopefully this, uh... You know, we went we went through beta testing. Hopefully, we worked out the kinks and <laughs> we're ready for a full release here.
2: Right. So this is our part of our roundtable series. We try to do different categories of roundtables. We do the in the '90s episodes. We do the genre dissections. We do the 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 albums of whatever year going back 20 or I guess now next year will be 30 years when we go back to 1990. We started a new one last year. It's called Origins, where we take a look at a band that started in the 90s a little bit under the radar, but in the 2000s, they blew up and became a successful band, both in terms of album sales and in terms of singles, and just sort of entering the public consciousness with regards to uh, their existence. Last year, it was Spoon. Spoon started out, I guess you'd say, an indie band. And they're still an indie band. They've been on Merge and various uh, very successful labels, but they have expanded into uh, you know being a staple of the touring circuit of uh, f- you know, festivals, and and they're just a consistent album every two or three years. So we wanted to tackle another band, which we put up uh, a poll as we do for our patrons. And those at the steering committee and the board of directors levels get to, not only do they get to vote on the polls, they actually get to pick what the options are going to be on the polls. Mm-hmm. So, it just so happens, Jay, the gentleman who happened to be the suggestor of not only this, but the Spoon episode has joined us all the way from frigid Toronto, Canada, where I'm sure it's seventeen Celsius. Is that a thing? I don't know. What's the what's the temperature up there, Johnny Hooper? Let's put it at uh, a balmy twenty-six for today. Okay, I was close. So twenty-six. Twenty-six, 26 converted to Fahrenheit is. Four hundred? What is the conversion? <laughs> yeah,
3: about four fifty, I believe. Four fifty? I can bake a, a potato with that.
2: Nice. Also joining us, he was here for the last Origins round table. We said we need another Origins episode out of you, and he said, I'm back. Read strength, welcome back.
0: What's up guys? Yeah. Glad to be back. And um Johnny, if it's if it's balmy uh where you're at here in good old sweet home Alabama, it is uh I think it's the true definition of balmy, I think. It is like 90 degrees, and I'm sweating at this very moment. So, happy to be here and sweating in front of you guys. Yeah. My apologies.
2: I think Good. all of us are sweating based on the heat wave <laughs> that's currently overtaking North America. Mm. Jay's in Texas, where it is always hot. I'm in Ohio, where we have had a, a, a well above 90 uh, heat wave going, so... I even tried to mow the lawn today, and that was a terrible, terrible mistake. So, Johnny, since you were the person that suggested this, tell us the band we'll be revisiting on this episode of Origins.
3: Modest Mouse
2: is the band of the hour. Yeah, so people probably know Modest Mouse thanks to a couple of albums. One would be Good News for People Who Love Bad News, which came out in 2004. It went platinum in the U.S., gold in Canada, silver in the U.K. It made it to number 18 on the uh, chart in the U.S., 37, uh, Scotland, 40, U.K., had a huge single with Float On. That was ubiquitous. That was everywhere. That was in car commercials and movie trailers and it was everywhere. Then they followed it up three years later with We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank. That went to number one in the U.S., gold in the U.S., gold in Canada, Uh, number 12 in australia number one in canada number 35 in scotland number 47 in the uk johnny marr played on that and toured with the band for an album which was interesting again they had singles with dashboard and um some other ones which we'll get into and then the last release that they've had out is a full length is strangers to ourselves that came out in 2015, that made it up to number three in the U.S. charts. So in the 2000s, they have been a pretty consistent band in terms of charting and sales and singles. They have not been consistent in terms of putting out material. It's 2000 and then 2004 and 2007, which is three years in between each of those. And then a the long break, eight years between We Were Dead and Strangers to Ourselves. And then they've put out a new single, I believe, this year. I think it's over on uh, on the Spotify. If you go there, what's the name of that song? What's it called? It's Poison po- the Well. Poison the Well. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
2: Yes. So yeah, and there's a second single. Uh, I'm still here. That was just mm-hmm. that was just released in April. So what we're gonna do is talk about their early years, which is the stuff that I'm not all that familiar with. I didn't get into Modest Mouse like a lot of people until two, around 2000. When um, someone played for me, uh, Tiny City made, Tiny Cities Made of Ashes, and I was like, what is this? <laughs> so we're going to go back. Now, Jay, were you familiar with Modest Mouse beyond the singles?
1: I remember hearing some of Lonesome Crow- Crowded West, but it was more just in the periphery. Okay. Um, it wasn't until Antarctica that I became more aware of them. But yeah, I mean, I knew the band and heard some stuff here and there.
2: Gotcha. Reed, what about you? When did you get into the band? So Modest Mouse
0: was, it was a huge band for me back in high school. I found them through kind of the singles that you mentioned already, Float On, Dashboard. Um, And I remember buying uh, Good News for People Who Love Bad News from my local FYE and thinking that it was at the time like one of the most difficult rock albums I'd ever heard. Like it just seemed so strange and so all over the place and I just didn't. You know, you had this like super Yelpy front man, and I was like, what's the deal? And then, like all great albums, you know, I listened to it more and more, and it started to reveal itself. And then I became basically a Modest Mouse super fan. I um, owned every record for a while, um, especially loved Moon in Antarctica and Lonesome Crowded West. And there was a time where I thought that Isaac Brock was like the peak of all lyricists. Um, I just thought that he was. All of his weird stoned observations was just the stuff of that poetry is supposed to be made of. But then, you know, kind of once high school ended and I moved on to other genres and just other artists in, in college, um, I really hadn't listened to Modest Mouse seriously until you guys actually approached me about this podcast. Um, so it was really cool to to revisit them the last few weeks.
2: Excellent, glad we got you back into it. Yeah. So Johnny, uh, same question for you. When did you first get into Modest Mouse? How was how'd you get into them?
3: So I come on board with Modest Myths around the same time as, uh, going, uh, whole hog into, uh, built to spill. Okay. Uh, somewhere between, um, Lonesome Crowded West and, uh, Moon in Antarctica. So the first record I would have bought would be Moon in Antarctica. But, uh, as I kind of progressed with them, I got more and more connected with the early records. I found them more raw and more passionate and, uh, It's just something that hits me uh, with greater depth than some of the later material does.
2: Gotcha. So we're going to start with the first album, which is 1996. This is a long drive for for someone with nothing to think about. Their album titles are long. Not like Fiona (laughs) Apple long, but they can get a little unwieldy when you're trying to repeat them over and over again.
1: They're d- difficult always... on the mouth.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> they don't flow. You, you, you trip over them. Yeah. They like I, intentionally well, make them
2: difficult. Yes, sir.
0: Unwieldy. No, I've I've always loved that about Modest Mouse because I, I love how it not only extends to the album titles, but all of the EPs are generally like, they're all consistently strange, right? Like, it's, it's never that they're just like, well, this is the like, they can't be like Weezer and just have like, Modest Mouse, you know, followed by colors or whatever. It's always a very specific thought or sentence, normally a sentence.
2: Yes, there are. They do tend to be a sentence. So going back to this first record, it was just mentioned a minute ago. In revisiting this, I want to throw this out there. In the same way that revisiting the first Spoon record last year, I was we brought up the Pixies comparison. When I started listening to this album, I was like, oh, this is very built to spillish. And, uh, I'm wondering if anybody else had that same reaction going back and listening to this.
3: Remember- Yeah, musically of course but i do feel uh, from a vocal aspect i think there is some sort of black
0: francis channeling going on there that's a great observation yeah i agree with that
2: mm-hmm. yeah yeah like the, sh- the kind of speak shout kind of thing yeah. that black francis does or
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah and don't
3: forget too that in the early years built to Spill was a was a trio so they're you can kind of see how those two bands kind of play off of each other that way.
2: And in terms of um, location, Modest Mouse are from Issaquah, Washington and Built to Spare from Idaho. Is that right? Yeah, Boise. Boise. So mm. um, I don't know how they're, if their paths crossed or, you know, I know Built to Spare was around before this, so yes, they've
3: toured together. There's uh, they both put out records on records. So for sure, there's there's multiple uh, paths crossing there.
0: Yeah,
2: I think the thing that I noticed in in listening to this record is I already heard some of the sort of telltale modest mouseisms. If that's if that's the way I could put it, <laughs> um, one is that. And Jay, you might be able to describe this better than I, is the guitar thing that mm. Isaac Brock does where he takes a note and he just like bends it back. and fr- It's usually a usual high note. It's like, Boo, woo, woo, like throughout yeah. their catalog, it's a very specific thing that they do. And then <sighs> he does.
1: Yeah, and I, I can't tell if he's I haven't watched. I think he's using a tremolo bar, I would assume. But I guess you could do that with bending. But uh, yeah, that is definitely a signature kind of riff and technique that he uses from the minute you start listening to the first first record through 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 now.
2: Yeah, what was your take on this album? Checking it out for the first time, I guess
1: you can definitely hear the the makings of the band um, vocally. It, it's it does a lot of doubling too. I think that's something that makes his vocal either doubles or harmonies a lot, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it unique because sometimes that. Second vocal might be screaming or doing some kind of either harmony or some other thing that is usually pretty creative. And obviously, you've got that guitar tone and also style. But you can also hear, I think, what you hear in the later records where they really they rely a lot more on drums and bass. You can you can kind of hear the the startings of that. I mean, they're much more of a guitar oriented band on this band on this record, but um, you can definitely hear the um, some moments where the bass and drums. You know, carry, carry a couple songs or bits of songs here and there and give you a, start to give you some clue of where the band will go eventually.
2: The only thing that, you know, it was really cool to hear this from a perspective of I know where they're going. The thing that I noticed, which bothers me with some of the later records, is how long this record is. 74 minutes. They use up almost every single second is, that's possible on a CD. I did find myself checking out uh, through a lot of the songs. I don't know if other I, people had that problem. It's very
1: experimental, yeah. too.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, and I think that's almost like, to me, when I think about the album title, like this is a long drive for someone of nothing to think about, I've always kind of thought that, like, it does drift so much where it seems like you get, you know, maybe three minutes of, like, a solid song, and then they just sort of jam for an extra three minutes. And it's mm-hmm. not that there's, like this particular musical thing they're doing, it's kind of like, they're just repeating what was already going on in the verses and choruses and just drawing it out. But I've always thought that that's sort of what it represents the album title. Like it seems like someone who like maybe focuses on what's playing on the radio for a little bit, and then just looks at the road for stretches of time and then pops back in. I've always thought it had that kind of ebb and flow that a long drive would
2: have. Interesting. So it's a literal interpretation of the title with regards to the length. Yeah. Huh.
0: But you know and kind of to what you guys are saying too like out of the i think the releases that we're going to talk about this one was always my least favorite of the modest mouse studio albums um i was actually looking back i said earlier that i'd had all the records i think i sold this one at some point i don't know when i don't remember selling it but i think i did because it's no longer here um because it's just besides like a handful of songs i can never justify owning an hour and 14 minutes of this album. You know, it's mm-hmm. just a little too a little too drifty for sure.
1: We have a comment from Jim Liskowski. Yes. Um talking shit about a pretty sunset is one of the first modest mouse songs I ever heard. And it remains my favorite. Built a spill ass dynamics, organic shaky guitar and venom va- bass lines all good. Yes, the shaky guitar. I think in general there's like a shakiness to the band with both the vocal and the guitar. There's this like a there's like almost a jitter the sound of the band that you definitely hear on the earlier stuff too.
3: If you've seen Isaac Brock interviewed, you understand
2: where that comes from. <laughs> I don't think I have. I don't think I know what his speaking voice sounds like. I don't think I've ever seen him.
3: He's a, he's a jittery character.
2: <laughs> there you go. I'm glad he brought up yeah. uh, the, the bass playing, though, because I really feel like because of the lower... I would say it's lower quality production, but the production is a little more stripped down than some of the later records um where they would add a lot more instruments and stuff i was able to hear what eric judy the bass player is doing and i there's a lot of really cool songs that he's carrying and doing really interesting things oftentimes it's just cuz you know isaac brock is doing just these picking parts and stuff which in also in in, in listening to this it made me wonder if did they tour at this time with as a three piece? Because I feel like I'm hearing in certain parts, like two guitar lines and I don't, always I don't know how they would be pulling that off. It says that, it, that a guy named Steve Wold played slide guitar, mandolin guitar and, and had backup vocals on this.
0: I know there's a guy named Dan Gulucci who shows up later all over Lonesome Crowded, but I, I know that he had been like a longtime friend of Isaac. So I don't know if he was maybe touring with them at the time. I don't know.
2: Because it, it would so, seem so. No, harder. they
3: toured as a as a trio, and Deep uh, War, mm. okay. by the way, is is C six uh, Steve. So, whoa!
0: Oh, chew on that for a second. Yeah. Oh my God! Now he's with Jack White's label, right? Or was. I believe you're absolutely right about that. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I liked it on his Wikipedia page. It says Steve Leach commonly known as Steve C- C6 Steve is an American blues musician who has taken on the name Stephen Gene Wold and claims to have been born in 1941.
0: <laughs> okay. We are, we are adding to his legend on this podcast. It sounds like
1: <laughs> I guess so. I, you started, you touched on it a little bit, Tim. I think you also hear that this is a band that's, um, comfortable I- experimenting in the studio, you know, yeah. like, uh, You know, a lot of bands in in the mid-90s, maybe like this, would be wanting to stay true to, you know, what they're capable of doing sort of in rehearsal. But they're definitely willing to go explore bringing cello in or just layering multiple vocals or guitars. I mean, there's a lot going on here that... Um, to your point, you know, I don't know how much of this they pull off live or how what it sounds like live, but there's definitely embracing of the studio that you hear from the very first record.
2: Yeah, and that sort of carries through when you get into the, the Interstate 8 EP, which I'm, I'm guessing based on the short turnaround time, it was released, uh, let's see, this was released in um, April, and then Interstate 8 was released in August. So I'm guessing that these were songs that maybe were... Not finished when they, or maybe they were just extra songs. They, I mean, they packed the album so much that they probably couldn't even just fit them on the record if they would wanted to. So, so yes,
0: I believe that the. Um, so when I'm looking at the Interstate Eight track list, I know that there. I think you're, what you're talking about is right. I think those five songs, Interstate Eight, to edit the sad parts, is sort of like old, like newer stuff that they couldn't fit on loans. On um, this is a long drive, but found a home on this. But then the live songs you'll notice are all pretty much from this is a long drive with someone for someone with nothing to think about. And those live cuts were part of their original demo called live in sunburst Montana that they'd sent before this is a long drive was sent out, which, so it's weird. It's got kind of a mix of old and new attached to it.
2: Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, So let's talk about it for a sec. I mean, I felt like, Sonically speaking, it was pretty cohesive to the to the album. I didn't. There wasn't anything like sometimes a band would put out an EP and there's like some radically different songs that clearly just didn't make the record because they were just you know so different and they decided to put them out in a you know like a one off. But none of these sounded so radically different from the album that it just acts as kind of a, a companion piece of extra tracks rather than. You know, something that would have been on bonus material now had it not been released. But uh, what's everyone's take on, on that EP in comparison to the first record?
3: I love the the songwriting uh, progression. I feel like there's some, some moody, melodic stuff, I think. Um, again, I love the three players themselves. I think um, Eric Judy's bass playing is really interesting, and he creates so many interesting parts. I find Jeremiah Green's uh, drumming really creative and kind of always holding my attention. And, you know, what can say about Brock? He's just, he's a madman.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I really love, um, you know, I I feel like when you listen to This is a Long Drive for Someone with Nothing to Think About and kind of the rest of these songs, you get sort of this, like, Pacific Northwest indie rock vibe. You know, we were kind of talking about it with the Built to Spill comparisons that we Mm -hmm. heard. But what I really loved was um, was sleepwalking, the track sleepwalking, which I mm-hmm. think is sort of pulled from an older song, sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny. But it's like this very kind of waltzy, but weird kind of take on Americana. It reminded me a lot of Twin Peaks in the sense that it was like mm. this very kind of classic, you know, kind of doo-wop-y sort of song. But it was still very much like this is Modest Mouse, and this is still you know they're going to add kind of their weird filter to it. Um, but I. You know, you were talking about the progression in songwriting. And I thought that was definitely a high example of that, for sure. The white trash boys listen to their headphones blasting white noise in the community. Store, parking, I am there my time I'm, sleepwalking. I'm sleepwalking.
3: I was just gonna say that too. Twin Peaks all the way. I can see yeah. Laura Palmer uh slow dancing to
2: that. Yep. Mm. That's interesting. I mm-hmm. had not thought about that, but yeah, it's got that vibe. So,
1: Jay, any thoughts on that EP? Uh, n- I haven't spent a ton of time with it. I think it sonically sounds a little better. It sounds a little fuller and, and warmer than the than the record does to me. Okay. Um, well, the first record can get a little brittle and um, they sound a little tighter too on this on the stuff.
2: Gotcha. So I want to jump to uh, the following year. I mean, it's it's they're pumping out recordings pretty quickly, like every six months, essentially, or you know, between April and August, that's only like four months. And is it? I don't know the math there. And then the uh, the following year, May of '97, they put out another EP. I guess it was supposed to just be a seven-inch, and then they ended up expanding it. They're recording um, at Kelvin Johnson Studios. That is the the fruit that ate itself EP that came out on uh, K Records, Calvin Johnson's label. And I thought, listening to this, it was interesting because one of the mentions or or quotes in the Wikipedia page is that the band was not happy with the way that some of the songs came out. But I thought there were some interesting sounds. Specifically, some of the songs had a vibe that was not locked into... The sort of mid to late '90s indie rock sound that was very prevalent on the first record, um, whereas one of them had like a almost like a '70s it's summer. Yeah,
1: the had... bow chicky wah wow, wah wow, the guitar. Yeah, it, it, I they
2: like I could s- see them like experimenting <laughs> a little bit and doing some like just a, a little bit more playing around. It seemed like. Whereas, I want to
0: shout out Bomb Chickawawa guitar for it. That,
2: <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> Sorry, Tim. That's okay. But that's uh Sure, maybe that maybe that was it, Jay. The, the Bomb Chikawa. <laughs> well
1: they're they're a band that has fun sometimes. I mean they can be kind of dark and but there's also some moments where there's a sense of humor, right? And so I think you hear that a bit. On uh, on that track.
2: Other takes uh, besides Bomb Chihuahua on the uh, the <laughs> Fruit That Sa- Ate Itself EP from '97. What do you, read or Johnny?
3: For me, I feel this is a bit of a, a dark hole here. You know, they're very generous with their with their set list. They switch up the songs pretty dramatically on a nightly basis, and these songs are never played. I don't I don't think there's too much here.
0: Yeah, gotcha. I. Johnny, kind of to what you're talking about, like again, in my Modest Mouse heyday, this was an EP that I always skipped for some reason. I think because at the Mm -hmm. time it was out of print um, before, like kind of when I was really into the band. But listening to it the last few weeks, it's just, I think the last two, Interstate 8 and This Is A Long Drive, were very of this earth. And this sounds like way out there. Like it just sounds like a very strange kind of record. I noticed that like every other track would be this like weird backwards guitar recording interlude thing, which just mm-hmm. I couldn't tell if that was trying to kind of sell a theme or an idea or if that was just filler. I, I couldn't really tell. Um, but when I was listening to it, you know, Isaac Brock is, is, uh, is nothing but a, a distinct frontman and lyricist for sure. And there is this one quote uh, of lyrics from the, the fruit that ate itself title track that went as follows Black Hole talking about nothing. You can't get the chicken or the stuffing going around and you think you're tough when you can't kick ass. I was just like, what the hell, man? Like, especially that line about the chicken or the stuffing. I was like, you just didn't care, did you? You were just going to put that in there. You had me at hello. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, memorable for, you know, maybe the odd lyrics and and the odd kind of playing with sound that I think they would do later, especially on very kind of psychedelic, spacey records like Moon in Antarctica. But otherwise, yeah, I think a very minor release in this band's canon. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, one that's not a minor release is the, the next release from 1997. That would be November of 97. And that's The Lonesome Crowded West. This... Is, I guess, where they became critically acclaimed. It, it may not have been where the sales took off. But it's number 29 on Pitchfork's greatest 100 albums of the 1990s. Now, that's obviously retrospect because I don't think Pitchfork was doing the greatest albums of the 90s in 1997. It was probably something that happened in in, two, in the two thousand. Spin ranked it number 59 on their 100 Greatest Albums of 1985 to 2005. Um, Entertainment Weekly included it in their Indie Rock List 25. Um, uh, Pitchfork TV in 2012 put out a 45 minute long documentary on the album. All that critical acclaim has amounted to 60,000 approximately 60,000 sales for, for the record. So, not well known in comparison to, obviously, the later records. But this is where they sort of became, I guess, critically acclaimed. And I this is where I started to hear, I think, him develop not only... Obviously, Isaac Brock is a very unique songwriter, both in terms of his, as you just <laughs> mentioned, his lyrical content, but also his the way he constructs melodies the way he sings i mean there's he left the built-to-spillisms behind and sort of on this record i feel like really finds his himself and on a song like trailer trash is where i start to hear like this is where him being a i don't want to say pop songwriter but a songwriter that is like at another level and it's yeah, not what just a that song, song. yeah
3: living choice with no class god damn i hope i can't pass high school taking heart with hard work god damn i am such a jerk i
2: Reed, what's your take on this record in comparison to the to the previous record as far as a leap forward? Boy, oh
0: boy. No, I mean, this record is is just... It's a sprawl in the best way, where I feel like uh, this is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about. Like, doesn't know what to do with its runtime. I feel like the Lonesome Crowded West knows exactly what it should do and what it can do. I just think there are so many moods so many different lyrical themes explored so many different weird things the band was doing like i just feel like it the lonesome crowded west was sort of their like creative like playground a little bit where they were like let's just let's try some country let's try some hardcore punk let's try some like heartfelt you know indie slightly emo stuff um i i think it's just a phenomenal record and as far as you know i don't know if you guys have ever done a ranking of like a best Sophomore albums or whatever, but I mean this I think would be on that list it's just fantastic.
2: We usually go the other way and and try to revitalize sophomore slumps so i don't okay i don't think that this would qualify for for the sophomore slump, but we might have a round table of best sophomore albums uh in mm. the future that could be uh a nineties roundtable topic because there's a lot of great sophomore records from bands Jay was this the album that you first uh, discovered them on.
1: Yeah, I remember. I remember trailer trash. Teeth like God's shoe shine too is as a song I remember as well. Um, very different. This is to me where they, t- to your point, you can start to see the, the ability to write pop songs or you know commercially viable songs. Um, right. You also hear. A, I start to hear some of the like Talking Heads kind of influence start to come out in them. Like they start to turn a quarter from being, you know a little bit weird, noisy, jammy kind of guitar band to something a little sharper and smarter sounding. So I, I think that's also what makes this record interesting for me is it seems to be a, where they're turning a corner.
2: Yeah, that's a great... That Talking Heads slash David Byrne influence, I start to... When I was revisiting the later records and sampling songs here and there, in terms of them utilizing rhythm... More so than having the rhythm drive the song as opposed to the guitars. I started to hear that a lot more. Maybe it starts here, but I started to hear that a lot more in the later records, Spo- especially in like the the slower to mid tempo stuff is where that sort of came in,
1: yeah, I, I think for me, it's it's where he's able to take his unusual you know vocal style and start to turn it into something. Like David Byrne does, where it's like his signature thing, and it becomes this rhythmic, melodic um, signature that is, you know, is unique to, to them. Um, that's where I start to hear this kind of come together. Whereas in the first record, he, he meanders a little bit; and it's it's not, he hasn't quite figured out potentially and tightened it up. Right. What he wants to do vocally, and here this sounds a lot more refined.
0: I want to also give a quick shout out. I know that you guys were talking about Isaac Brock really coming into his own, but I, and I know we've given a shout out to Eric Judy, the bassist as well, but I think this record is where Jeremiah Green shows just how much of a force he is to be reckoned with. I think the drums on this record are fantastic and especially Mm. Trucker's Atlas. I will listen to that song only for the first 20 seconds where I can just hear him like, Bash out that groove as well as he does, it's just amazing,
2: and that's where I think the idea of them pushing rhythm a little bit more probably, you know, yeah, I'm sure that his evolution as a drummer and I don't know how old these guys were when they started, so I don't have a good frame of reference for like you know, if they were young or if they were in their 20s or teenagers, yeah. So, I mean, it takes time a lot of times, especially rhythm sections, to get a grip on how to play together and being in the studio is is different than being in the practice space. I mean, anybody's ever been in a band knows when you start getting into the studio, it can mess with your head with regards to getting everything in time and, and the process can be challenging. So it sometimes can take an album or two to really start to settle in and, um, you can definitely hear it on this record, Johnny. What are your thoughts on this album?
3: Everything that Reed said.
2: Okay.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, yeah, it's it's longer, stretched out album, but it's used in every uh, possible great way. You're you've got um, multiple um, tempos. You've got uh, heartfelt uh, acoustics. Uh, you've got anthems with doing the cockroach and cowboy Dan uh you've got creative works like uh teeth like god's shoes Shine, and harcook's brain uh I, I think this is just a masterwork, and um i urge everybody to listen to it immediately
0: second that yeah great yeah. i mean just a essential listen for anyone who i think especially is wanting to has heard the like 2000s popular modest mouse and is looking to like kind of understand their origins like once i crowded west is it for sure in my opinion
2: 100 percent.
3: brock also mentions that he gets asked all the time to have uh shit luck put in skateboard videos
2: <laughs> really interesting so mm-hmm. that's a, that was a good lead into you know this band didn't wasn't immediate it wasn't until 2004, good news for people who love bad news, had um, the single float on, which uh, I'm trying to figure out. Let's see. That came out. It was actually released. The single was released in February of 2004. It went to number one on the U.S. Alternative Songs chart, number 32 on the U.S. Mainstream Top 40. The Mainstream Top 40. Imagine a Modest Mouse song uh, on a Mainstream chart. Like, that's and then sixty-eight on the Billboard Hot 100. It was used in, like I mentioned, films. Um, it was in. It was a playable track on Rock Band and Guitar Hero uh, when that was a thing. In li- listening back now, I can sort. Of, I can pick up where the bones of that song exist in different songs. The guitar part in the verses, or his. Speech pattern in in the uh, in the verses. The the thing that I th- found interesting was when he gets to the chorus part of that song. It's super melodic, which is not something I always picked up with him. He had interesting melodies, but they weren't always sang in that way. They were always not always, but they were quite often in his unique delivery. But it seemed like he figured out. I don't know if it was a you know, thing because they had signed to Epic and they were, you know, had released Moon and Antarctica on Epic, which did okay. went gold in the U.S. But I don't know if he felt pressure to write something that was catchier. It's hard to think of that as a catchy song like from the outside based on those verses. I, I still listen to it. I go, I can't believe this was a huge single. It seems bizarre to me. I don't know if anybody else feels that way considering how decimated the Indie rock landscape is compared to then and now in terms of having a mainstream presence. And then it's the same thing with like listening to Dashboard, the sing- that single clearly it had uh, you know figured out the singing versus the sort of the shout sing thing that we mentioned with regards to the Frank Black influence. So I'm curious what you guys thought about his evolution as a singer uh, throughout the 2000s, up to and, I mean even Strangers to Ourselves, the Lampshades on on Fire single, or yeah, that's the single, more of a melodic vocal than we heard from him in the early albums any thoughts on those
3: i'm bothered by the fact that it becomes somewhat formulaic i feel that you know there he's really channeling his own unique vision in the, in the 90s uh in the early very early 2000s and then i think something happens after float on i feel the the pressure to live up to that or uh the mere fact that there's more members in the band and and maybe the character of the band is changing i'm bothered by the fact that the songwriting becomes formulaic and he's starting to he's starting to check the box of what a modest mouse song is supposed to sound like all of a sudden
0: i i will back that up and say just because you add johnny Marr to your band does not mean that you will make a great album it just doesn't mm. i've always found um, uh, we were dead before the ship even sank to just kind of return to that overstuffed kind of nature of the debut album, but just in the opposite way where it's just, instead of maybe kind of doing the same things over and over and not really having a direction, it goes in so many directions that I can't really, it just seems like they kind of threw everything at the wall and none of it was like a good idea, you know? Um, and I, I think to, your, to the question about his singing, it's like Isaac Brock has always been a frontman with a ton to say like his lyrics are always just very verbose and very rapid fire and very quick um and definitely he learned to kind of soften the rough edges and the shouts and all the um kind of the almost hardcore cribbing screams that i think we hear from the debut to the sophomore release but yeah i would agree it becomes more formulaic and it kind of seems like he was just Every time Modest Mouse comes out with a new song now, at least a lead single to a new album, it sounds like they're trying to make a dance song, which maybe that's something he's interested in now, which is fine, but it doesn't really grab me as a listener. You know, I was more into this idea of a um, sort of this personal statement or this personal observation rather than just this like, hey, everybody, let's like groove to some guitar and chill out. You know, that's just that's not what I came to these early albums for, um, and that's what I hear a lot of in the in the later works.
2: You mentioned about having more people in the band. As of the last album, there were eight actual members of the band. So they went from being a three piece to an eight piece with a new bass player. I believe that the bass player left after we were dead. Now they have like a, like a percussionist. They have somebody doing synth. They have programming on the on the last record, which you mentioned about the dance aspect yeah they've they've morphed into like arcade fire in terms of their yeah, lineup thinking. size
1: jay have you checked out the more recent modest mouse in comparison i haven't listened to the records but like dashboard is a song i know i don't know was that in a commercial or something i, I definitely know that song um that was 2007
2: that was we were dead before this that's the johnny marr album yeah. okay that all the other singles from that were Miss the Boat, which I remember that getting played a lot, and we got everything. And I remember also, like, at least in Columbus, Florida, was a song that got played, which uh, James Mercer from The Shins sings on that song as well. Again, it's super melodic chorus with that Brock delivery in the verses, which is, um, I guess, kind of going to a formula. I guess that's kind of the, for the singles at least. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I have a little bit of, I mean, I understand, too, because it's, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but, like, I'm sure they all want to make a living making music, so <laughs> there's going to be a little bit of, uh, I think, even just natural tendency to, if you figure out something that works, to keep doing that so that you can keep selling records and touring and paying your bills and doing this, so, um I mean, whenever a band can last this long, I I try to cut them a little bit of slack, and and sometimes it it ends up being like an interesting combination of you know the pop sound with you know trying to hold on to the core of what they are, which they kind of did a little bit. I mean, they're definitely still sound unique. So
2: I'll agree. No, go ahead, Tim. I was going to say what's interesting is so Johnny Marr left the band after they did their touring for this record, and they uh, Jim Fairchild replaced mar in 2008 i guess and um you know they were an active band it wasn't like they were inactive at one point they were in the studio with big boy of outcast
1: okay why not
2: <laughs> i mean and that was like in 2011 honest. yeah so even though they were active touring and stuff it took them a long time to get this record out which is you mentioned about being a band that wants to like you know make money and not make money in the sort of sellout sense, but just, just you know have, make a living making.
1: They want to live,
2: right? Yeah. And it seemed like they turned away from recording and just focused on touring and wow. and they did play Coachella and all these different festivals and you know Firefly and various things and um, they were doing re-releases of stuff that had not come out on vinyl and that sort of thing, so. And adding more people to the band every year, it seemed like. <laughs> so so go ahead, Reed. What were we going to say? Well, you know, the big boy thing is interesting
0: because I, I think, you know, when you really think about it, rapping is not new to Modest Mouse. Like incorporating that into their sound is not as radical of an idea as I think it maybe sounds on the surface, because I would say that. Venture to say that Isaac Brock even sort of pseudo raps in Mm -hmm. some of the earlier songs that we were talking about. Heart Cook's Brain's a really good example. The song Ohio from Scratching, too. The Scratching. Yeah. 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 So, like, for them to bring on a rapper to kind of relaunch themselves with a new single, I think it could work. And Big Boy's great, right? So, like, sure, but it's just. I think, you know, you were talking about the the distance between like output and more of a focus on touring. I I don't know how to interpret that. I don't know how to interpret it as like we're a really huge band that people will definitely come to see and pay a lot of money for. And that's how we're going to make our living. Or if maybe Isaac Brock is in a bit of a creative rut, you know, I don't know, Um, especially the distance between releases from Good News on. I'm just not really sure how to interpret that. Um, I'll also say that you know we've been kind of maybe kind of hem-hawing on their on their 2000s output. They released an EP, I believe it was in 2009, called "No One's First and You're Next," which was uh, a collection of different songs from uh, Good News as well as We Were Dead as well as maybe some earlier recording sessions. Um, I think that EP is fantastic. I think that's probably my favorite thing they've released in the last decade or so. Um, so if anyone listening is like, oh, man, yeah, all Modest Mouse, you know, post-2004 or whatever is horrible, I would definitely say give that EP a listen. It's, it's pretty special. It's got a great song called Satellite Skin on it.
3: Agreed. 100% agreed.
2: Interesting. I haven't checked that out. I will check that out. I see that it's got a bunch of, like, B-sides and... There's something from B side to float on, and B side to dashboard, those sorts it's of things. They all the way through. I guess that leaves us with the uh, the the premises origins. This is a band that started out under the radar in the two, in the nineties, and then became big in the two thousands. Was there in our discussion? I guess a did we reveal that. We could see the the origins of where this band was going, of of where they were gonna, you know, take their foundations and become a against what I would consider the odds to become a a very popular uh, mainstream, you know, Billboard charting band. I think I think we did answer that question. Jay, would you agree?
1: I think you can go back and find you can hear the threads, but I'd be lying if you. Took me back to 1998 and told me that this band would, you know, have huge hits and be all over commercials and TV, I would have thought you were insane. <laughs> um, I think it makes sense now, but I don't think there would, but it would be any way at the time to, to be able to kind of project and see that the, the commercial potential this band eventually had. Not just
2: huge hits. Float On is probably one of the biggest singles of the first decade of the 2000s. Like up there with like pop bands, and mm. pop artists <laughs> in terms of its overall cultural impact being involved in TV shows and commercials and movies and stuff like that. I mean, covered by other artists, it became sort of a ubiquitous single for like a year and a half. Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know if we could predict that that's, that's sort of a lightning in a bottle situation.
1: Well, even without the commercial success, but just to go go to the first record and think that that band could put together a, you know, a sharp pop esque type song, right, was kind of was fairly would have been difficult to see, right. So came a long way.
0: I was going to say too the thing about Float On and just sort of their pop appeal that I find super surprising is not only that they it was played on the radio and it and you're right it became so. Kind of all over the place you know all on these commercials it became ringtones it became this whole thing but when you look at this earlier material i think isaac brock is a very cynical dude i think he's got a very kind of doomed sad um, negative kind of view of the world around him and float on by comparison is this very kind of upbeat song where it says hey sometimes life sucks but that's okay it's all going to be all right in the end like that was not the guy that we were hearing you know, less than a decade earlier. On this is a long drive for someone with nothing to think about. Lonesome, crowded west. Like I think that's maybe the biggest surprise for me is that his songwriting changed so much. It seemed like it was a different person speaking. And float on, which I think is a great song, but just a very different song um, than mm. what he was writing in 97
2: 95, all those years. Yeah. There's no
3: point having me on because I agree with everything Reed is saying. I'm just.
2: Like, <laughs> <"No."> <laughs> Okay, then, well, we're done then. Uh... <laughs> He's so right.
3: I, I feel like it, it feels like a charade to be quite honest with you. I feel like these those first three records, uh, I'm hearing such a unique voice. Um, I'm hearing such unique players. And then all of a sudden it just becomes this commodified bullshit, like uh, I just don't I don't buy what I'm listening. It, it doesn't mean anything to me anymore. They're going out on tour with the Black Keys uh, later this year. And Whoa. there's another band that completely has lost the plot. They've just, they've kind of sold their souls. And uh, and the music is meaningless now. It just, it just doesn't go anywhere. It meanders and it's safe. And uh, it's, it's a sad, it's just kind of a sad progression from two formerly very vital bands.
0: You know, I'll say though, I, you know, I agree. And I'm glad that we've struck this, this friendship from, uh, from this, this tribe, this across the nation friendship, man, I really am. I'm, and I'm glad that we've, we have such common views on this, but you know, the thing that I'll say about float on, you know, is if to me, if Isaac Brock became this other person later on, and he was like, you know what, life isn't so bad. And I'm going to write about it. Like, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. It's, it's it's not the it's not the perspective shift that I have an issue with. It's more or less just the like I don't know, it's I think we kind of said it earlier where it seemed like maybe float on was such a success that they were like, Well, if we kind of harp onto this formula a little bit and keep doing this, maybe we can just keep having successes, um, like with good news with people who have bad news. And I just I don't know, for to me as a listener and as a fan, I get a little bored by that. But if Isaac's happier in life and he's just Deciding to share this rosier perspective out like that's fine. That is what it is. You know, I, I can't blame him for that
3: You know, don't forget gravity rides everything was in a
0: commercial.
3: That's that's a, very that's a great point palatable song uh, but it's still It's still saying something to me. They're still doing something musically really interesting. It may be much uh, smoother around the sides but there's just, there's nothing wrong with it. It totally works, but there, it becomes more like we're just playing to the masses a few years later. And it's, I understand it's a career, you gotta make money and um, you know, other things enter the equation. But um, as a listener, it just saddens me. Yeah, sure.
1: I hear you. I think the same thing about Weezer every time I hear the new song.
0: (laughs) I think. Oh my gosh! I think the last episode with Spoon, we also talked about Weezer at the end of it. So this is this is a consistent theme. Yeah.
1: There we go.
2: Yeah. Oh Jesus. <laughs> uh. So on that note, I think it's a good time for us to uh, to wrap up our discussion on Modest Mouse in the '90s. If you haven't checked them out, if you're only familiar with a couple singles in the 2000s. I think the consensus here is you go start with the Lonesome Crowded West, and uh, and you dig up that record, which is available, you know, any everywhere. You can stream it wherever, and uh, and then if you're intrigued, go back and check out. This is a long drive, uh, but I would not start the other way just because I think they really nail everything down, as we discussed on that Lonesome Crowded West album. That's that's the where everything uh gels so we need to thank our first of all we need to thank uh reed for coming back for the second origins round table reed what are you up to these days what's uh where where are you on the socials people find you there yeah
0: yeah guys i'm uh, i'm definitely on this thing we call social media um <laughs> i'm on twitter i believe at reed strength you can follow me there i freelance occasionally here and there um, but always love getting to come on this kind of stuff and uh, and talk about a band who's had as interesting of a career as Modest Mouse. So thank you guys so much for uh, for bringing me back and uh, and yeah, just chilling here in Birmingham, Alabama, hoping to make this place a better place for sure.
2: Excellent, Johnny. Thank you for suggesting this and our previous Origins uh, episode on Spoon. You mentioned about uh, do you do a podcast? I'm
3: wanting to do a podcast right now. I've got um, a website up that does uh, news, reviews, and interviews. It's called com. Oh,
1: okay. The-
3: yep. So you can find us, uh, Chorus, The Chorus, on Twitter and uh, ChorusVerseChorus on Instagram. And, uh, yeah, I would love to have a kind of companion podcast go with that uh, at some point down the road. If oh. I. Never get any free time from my three year old.
2: I I'm I'm gonna um be a little uh, uh stereotype I'm gonna stereotype you here. I'm gonna ask a question. Are you a fan of the Tragically Hip? Uh
3: my friend, I saw two of the last three shows that they played in Toronto.
2: Okay. <laughs> I have an idea to do are you familiar so there's there's a number of podcasts where they will like run through the catalogue of a band, like album by album. It'll be like a limited series. I'm I'm thinking about maybe need need to do as a side project a tragically hip uh, album by album podcast where you just dissect uh, each got album in order. Tomorrow,
3: big guy. Let's make this happen.
2: <laughs> All right. We can talk about it late, uh, uh, off air. Uh, Cause I want to, I want to dig into some, uh, some, some road apples. So um,
3: road apples. Yeah.
2: We need to thank our patrons who voted, who helped us get this going um i gotta say sorry to whitney beeler he was the person who wanted uh jimmy Eat World, and so maybe that was the losing end of the the poll so maybe for the next origins we'll put that in the hopper and and uh, see if it can come out ahead and um, i'm sure we'll get some folks who want to talk about jimmy Eat world in the 90s but we'll have to see next year when we do our next origins roundtable but that's dmounion.com is where you go to join the union and of course if you like what you heard you can leave us some positive feedback over at iTunes so for Jay I'm Tim we're out and we'll be back next week with another episode of dig me out
1: thanks for
0: listening to support the podcast visit www.patreon.com
3: forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages as well as our merchandise store at Zazzle.com
1: It anything